Chapter Twenty One of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Twenty One, The Exit of the Pretender. I sat in the saddle of El Mahdi on the hilltop beyond the bridge and watched the day coming through the gateway of the world. It was a work of huge enchantment, as when, for the pleasure of some ancient caliph or the taunting of some wanton queen, a withered magus turned the ugly world into the kingdom of the fairy, and the lolling hangers-on started up on their elbows to see a green field spreading through the dirty city, and green trees rising above the varnished temples, and wild roses, and the sweet dew-drenched briar trailing where the camel's track had just faded out, and autumn leaves strewn along pathways of a wood, and hills behind it all where the sunlight flooded. It was like the mornings that came up from the sea by the wood wonderful, or those that broke smiling when the world was newly minted, mornings that trouble the blood of the old shipwreck sunning by the door, and move the stay-at-home to sail out for the cloud islands. Full of the joy of life was this October land. I could almost hear the sunlight running with a shout as it plunged in along the hickory trees and went tumbling to the thickets of the hollow. The mist hanging over the low meadows was a golden web, stretched by enchanted fingers across some exquisite country, into which a man might come only through his dreams. I waited while the cattle went by, counting the cattle to see that none had been overlooked in the night. The Aberdeen Angus still held his place in the front, and the big muley bull marched by like a king's governor, keeping his space of clear road at the peril of a Homeric struggle. I knew every one of the six hundred, and I could have hugged each great black fellow as he trudged past. Judd and the cardinal went by in the middle of the long line, and passed out of sight behind a turn of the hill below. The giant rode slowly, lolling in his saddle and swinging his big legs free of the stirrups. Then the lagging rear of the drove trailed up, and the hunchback followed on the bay eagle. He was buttoned to the chin in Roy's blue coat and looked for all the world like some shriveled old marshal of the empire, a hundred days out of Paris, covering the retreat of the imperial army. El Mahdi stood on the high bank by the roadside, in among the dead blackberry briars, and I sat with the rain under my legs and my hands in my pockets. The hunchback stopped his horse in the road below me, squared himself in the saddle, and looked up with a great supercilious grin. Well, he said, I'll be damned. What's the trouble? said I. Huh, he snorted. Are them breeches I see on your legs? That's what they call them, said I. Well, he said, when you get home, take em off, and hand em over to old Liza, and ask her to bring your kilts down out of the garret, for you're as innocent a little codger as ever sucked his hide full of milk. What are you driving at? I asked. Ump shook out his long arms and folded them around the bosom of his blue coat. Judd told me, he said, and the pair of you ought to be put in a cradle with a rockabye baby. Woodford was done when the axe fell in the river, and he knowed it. He was riding out when he saw you and Judd, and he said to himself, God's good to you, Rufus, my boy. Here's a pair of little babies a long way from their ma and it ought to count you one. 
then he lit off and offered to wrestle you heads i win and tails you lose for the cake in your pocket and then he chucked you under the chin and you promised not to tell the hunchback set his two fingers against his teeth and whistled like a hawk a long shrill hissing whistle that startled the little partridges on the sloping hillside and sent them scurrying under the dead grass and brought the drumming pheasant to his feathered legs then he threw his chin into the air and squinted quiller he piped with the long echo still whining in his throat that whistle fooled you and it fooled jud but it wouldn't fool a bobwhite with a shell on its back when the old bird hears it she don't wait to see the long shadow travelin on the grass but she hollers into the weeds boys if you want to save your bacon and you ought to see the little codgers scatter let it be a lesson to you quiller my ladybuck when you hear that whistle light out for the tall timber when you're fightin the devil half the winnin is the runnin then he opened his great cavernous mouth and began to bellow ho ho for the carrion crow but hark to the squawk of the carrion hawk gathered up his reins and set out after the drove in a hard gallop all doubled over in his blue coat i got el mahdi into the road and we went swinging down the hill i had a light flashed into the depths of woodford and i saw dimly how able and how dangerous a man he was I began to comprehend something of the long complex formula that goes to make up a human identity, and it was a discovery as startling as when a fellow perched on his grandfather's shoulders sees through the keyhole a tangle of wheels all going behind the white face of the clock. I had been deftly handled by this Woodford, and yet I had not seemed to be. He had striven to move me to his will with a sort of masked edging, and, failing in that, left me with the bitterness drawn out more than that shrewd and far-sighted man taken hot against him i was almost won over to his star under the hammering of the hard-headed ump i saw woodford in another light but i carried no ill will he had jousted hard and lost and youth holds no post-mortems but the flock of night-birds had not flown out into the sun dislodged from one quarter they flapped across my heart to another ridge-pole woodford had been holding the blue hills with his men and we knew what it meant to go up against him but down yonder among the lairs of our house one worked against us with her nimble fingers my heart went hard against the woman if she drew back from our floorboard there was the tongue in her head to say it no obligation bound her true we had given her of our love freely but it was a thing no man could set a price on and no man could pay save as he told back the coin which he had borrowed and failing in that coin it was a debt beyond him the door to our house stood pulled back on its hinges nothing barred it but the sun if the god whim was piping she could follow to the world's end one might as well bow out the women when her blood is cooling against the human heart the king's writs have never run i slapped my pocket above the letter the current had turned and was running landward 
the evil thing cast out upon its flood was riding back. I hoped it might sting cruelly the hand that flung it. I rose in my stirrups and shook my youthful fists at the hills beyond the gully. I could see the smile dying on her red mouth when one came to say that her plans were shipwrecked. Then I thought of Ward, and something fluttered in my throat. He was under the spell of this slim, brown-haired witch. She was in his blood, running to his fingertips. She was on him like the sun. Why could not the woman see what the good God was handing down to her? It was the treasure worth a kingdom. Did she think to find this thing at any crossroads? Oh, she would see. She would see. This thing was found rarely by the luckiest so rarely that many an old wise man held that there was no such treasure under the sun, and the quest of it was but a fool's errand. I was a mile behind the drove, and when I came up it had reached the borders of Woodford's land. Judd had thrown down the high fence, staked and ridered with long chestnut rails, and the stream of cattle was pouring through and spreading out over the great pasture. I watched the little groups of muleys strike out, through the deep broom-sedge hollows and the narrow bulrush marshes and the low gaps of the good sodded hills, spying this new country, finding where the grass was sweetest and where the water bubbled in the old poplar trough and what wind-sheltered cove would be the warmest to a fellow's belly when he lay sleeping in the sun. Then we rode north through the hills, over the gully where the oak leaves carpeted the ford and the little trout darted like a beam of light and the old fish-hawk sat on the hanging limb of the dead beech-tree, with his shoulders to his ears and his beak drooping, like some worn-out voluptuary brooding his sins. On we went through the deep-wooded lanes, where the red-bird stepped about in his long crimson coat, jeering at the wren, who worked in the deep thicket, as though the master-builder had gone away to kingdom come, and left her behind to finish the world. We came to many a familiar landmark of my golden babyhood. The enchanted grove on the Seely Hill, where I had hunted fabled monsters and gone whooping down among the cattle. The great house meadow, where Red Mike pitched me out of the saddle when he grew tired of having his bit jerked, and I sat up in my little petticoats and solemnly demanded that Jordan should cut his head off, a thing the old man promised on his sacred honor when he could borrow the axe of the man in the moon, the high gate-post by the cattle-scales, where I perched bareheaded in a calico dress, and watched old Bedford make his last fight against human government. Bedford, a bull of mysterious notions, that would kill you if he found you walking in his field, and lick your stirrup if you came riding on a horse. It was now a country of rich meadow-land, and blue-grass hills rising to long, flat ridges that the hickories skirted, but in that other time it was a land of wonders, where in any summer morning, if a fellow set out on his chubby legs, he might come to enchanted forests, lost rivers, halcyon kingdoms guarded by some spell, where the roving fairies hunted the great bumblebee to the doorway of his house, and slew him on its sill, and carried off his treasure. Through the fringe of locust bushes along the roadside we caught the first glimpse of a home, and the three horses pricked up their ears and swung out in a longer trot. We clattered down the wide lane and tumbled out of the saddles at the gate, leaving the bay eagle standing proudly 
like some victorious general, and the cardinal like a tired giant who has done his work, and El Mahdi, with his grey head high above the gate, looking away, as of old, to the far-off mountains, as though he wondered vaguely if the friend, or the message, or the enemy would never come. We marched over the flagstone walk, and into the house, and up the stairway. Old Liza flung us some warning through a window to the garden, which we failed to catch, and bellowed back a welcome. Then we gained the door to the library, threw it open, and went crowding in. A step beyond that door we halted with a jerk. Ward was lounging in a big chair with a pillow behind his shoulder, and over by the open window where the sun danced along the casement was Cynthia Carper setting a sheaf of roses in a jar. Ward looked us down to the floor, and then he laughed until the great chair tottered on its legs. "'Cynthia,' he cried, "'will you drop a curtsy to these gallant troopers?' She spun around with a fear kindling in her eyes. "'The cattle,' she said. "'Did you get them over?' I had the situation in my fingers, and I felt myself grow taller with it. "'Yes,' I said harshly. Then I put my hand into my pocket, drew out the letter, and handed it to her with a mocking bow. I was asked to carry this letter back to you, and say that my brother's word was good enough for Nicholas Marsh. She took the envelope and stood twisting it in her slim fingers, while a light came up slowly in the land beyond her eyelids. Ward held out his hand for the letter, and then I looked to see her flutter like a pinned fly. She grew neither red nor white, but crossed to his chair and put the letter in his hand. He tore off the envelope and ran his eyes down the written page. "'Your order for the money,' he cried. "'This was not mentioned in our plan. What is this?' "'That,' said the straight young woman, "'is a field order of the commanding general issued without the knowledge of the War Department.' Then I saw the whole underpinning of the scheme, and my heart stumbled and went groping about the four walls of its house. I tramped out of the room and down the stairway to the big window at the first landing. I stopped and leaned out over the walnut casement. El Mahdi stood as I had left him, staring at the far-off wall of the hills, and below me in the garden old Liza stooped over her vines, not a day older, it seemed to me, than when I galloped at her long apron-strings on Alhambra, the son of the wind. End of chapter 21 An End of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davison Post Recorded by Marianne Spiegel, Chicago, Illinois, 2013